The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. So we've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter. And today the next passage we come to is 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 7, and it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, and if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Rick. Let's pray this morning. Father, we, it is our privilege to stand out of respect as your word is being read. And what a good reminder that is, Lord, of just uh, the, the holiness of this word that we are taking a look at this morning, Lord. It is God-breathed. It comes from your very mouth. And, Lord, we are told that the one who delights in your word It says in Psalm chapter 1, is uh, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and that has leaves that do not wither. So, Lord, we want to be that tree. (laughs) Uh, So would you please open up your word to us this morning so that we can be rooted in your word, nourished in your word, and sustained by your word. Holy Spirit, would you use the things taught in this passage here in 1 Peter to change us from within. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the greatest gifts that God has given to humanity is the gift of marriage. It's a gift that he intended to be a wonderful source of blessing in our lives. And I think that uh, the vast majority of married couples would say that it is. Uh, I know Becky and I certainly would. I have often told Becky that she is my greatest earthly blessing. And uh, she'll sometimes reply to that by letting me know that I definitely at least make her top 10 list. (laughs) So that's good, I guess. 
Uh, and yet marriage can uh, sometimes be difficult as well. Of course, there are several reasons for this, but one of them is that we sometimes try to approach marriage in ways that are contrary to God's design. Kind of like when a child finds a pair of toy binoculars and tries to look through the wrong end of those binoculars. That never works very well, does it? Peering into the wrong end of a pair of binoculars isn't going to help you see any further and will in all likelihood probably obscure your vision. That's because you're not using those binoculars in the way that they were intended to be used. Similarly, whenever we approach marriage in a way that's contrary to the way God intended for us to approach it, things just aren't going to go very well. It's going to result in all kinds of difficulties and dysfunction. Thankfully, though, God's given us instructions in the pages of Scripture for how to approach marriage. And one of the places where we find those instructions is right here in our main passage in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Now, as you probably noticed when this passage was being read a few moments ago, there's a lot in this passage that's radically different than the ideas about marriage that are prevalent in our society today. I think we could even say that there, much of it even offends modern sensibilities. Yet as we explore what Peter writes in these verses, we're going to see how beautiful God's plan for marriage actually is. And we'll also see how it's strikingly different, not only from the feminism that's been pervasive in our society for the past 60 years or so, but also from the chauvinism that's characterized many previous generations. So make sure you get that. Biblical marriage is an alternative to both feminism and chauvinism. Both the feminist impulse of women rising up against their husbands and the chauvinist impulse of husbands belittling and demeaning their wives are distortions of the beautiful way God intended for husbands and wives to relate to each other. God's plan is for something else entirely. Something beautiful and glorious. And that's the main idea of this passage in 1 Peter. God has a wonderful plan for the way husbands and wives should relate to each other. Again, God has a wonderful plan for the way husbands and wives should relate to each other. Now, to remind you of the context here, Peter's just given us extensive instructions in the second half of chapter 2 about submitting ourselves to our earthly authorities. He's first told us all to submit to our governing authorities and also told slaves, or today we could say employees, to submit to their employers. And Peter now turns his attention to wives here in chapter 3. He writes in verses 1 and 2, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So as you can see, Peter doesn't mince words or beat around the bush when it comes to how wives should conduct themselves, but instead states very clearly that wives should be subject to their husbands. And that phrase, be subject, is also translated as submit or be submissive. And obviously this teaching that a wife should submit to her husband is radically different uh, from the mentality that is currently pervasive in our culture. And it's a teaching that's often difficult uh, for many women to accept. I think even many women who have a genuine desire to live for God uh, might at times find this to be a a difficult pill to swallow because they might wonder, does this mean that women are somehow inferior to men? And that's a very understandable question to have. The answer, of course, is absolutely not. The Bible is very clear that both men and women are created in God's image, right? So they are equal in value and dignity and worth. So Genesis 127 clearly states both men and women were created in the image of God. Both of them bear God's image to an equal degree. Also, in addition to bearing God's image, I believe it's significant that in Genesis 2, 21 and 22, God forms the woman from the rib of the man. The woman wasn't formed from the man's head, as if to indicate that she was above him, nor was she formed from his foot, indicating that she was beneath him, but instead was formed from the man's side, indicating that she was and is his equal. So that's a foundational teaching that we have to keep in mind. However, even though both men and women bear God's image to an equal degree and have equal value and worth in God's sight, the fact is that God designed them to have different roles and functions in the marriage relationship, right? to, to function in different ways. And so husbands and wives are equal in value and worth and yet different in role and function. Now, as we seek to, to put these two ideas together, perhaps it might be helpful to compare it to uh, something a bit more concrete, like the differences between dirt bikes and motorcycles. All right? It's not that dirt bikes are better than motorcycles or that motorcycles are better than dirt bikes, but rather that the two of them simply have different functions. Right? They're designed for two different types of terrain and will function the best when they're used on the kind of terrain for which each of them is designed. So they're, they're equal in value and yet different in function. And that's the way it is with husbands and wives as well. They're equal but not identical. Right? Equal but not identical. God's designed them to have different roles and functions in the marriage relationship And one of the things that the wife's role involves is submitting to her husband. And yet this doesn't in any way, as we said, make her inferior to her husband. I mean, just think about the relationship, for example. 
between Jesus and God the Father. Jesus is just as divine and just as important and just as much worthy of worship as God the Father is. He shares all of the Father's attributes. So the two of them are equal in value and worth, and yet functionally, Jesus submits to the Father's authority and follows the Father's leading. In John 6, 38, Jesus states, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in John 8, 28, he says again, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught. So Jesus clearly submits to the Father's will, and yet isn't in any way inferior to God the Father. And it's the same with wives and husbands. Wives are no more inferior to their husbands than Jesus is to God the Father. In addition, another reason I think many wives are hesitant to embrace what the Bible says about submission is because they simply misunderstand what submission means and what it entails. So let me very briefly outline a few of the things that submission doesn't mean. First, submission doesn't mean agreeing about everything. John Piper phrases it in a particularly memorable way when he writes that submission doesn't mean leaving your brain at the wedding altar. Uh, So as a wife, you are allowed to respectfully disagree with your husband's opinions. Uh, I believe that's part of what it means to obey the greatest commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. To love God with your mind. So think, in one sense, think your own thoughts. Uh, Come to your own interpretations of Scripture about various things. Form your own opinions about various things. Use the mind God has given you. Uh, Second, submission doesn't mean never trying to influence your husband. That's actually precisely what Peter's encouraging wives to do in our main passage to persuade their husbands of the Christian faith. And there are plenty of other areas in which wives can seek to influence their husbands as well. Of course, there are right ways and wrong ways to go about trying to do that. Uh, Wrong ways would include nagging uh, their husbands or seeking to manipulate their husbands. But wives can absolutely seek to influence their husbands in a godly way direction and with godly means and methods. Third, along those same lines, submission doesn't mean a lack of open and honest dialogue. You know, it's not like a husband stands up on some sort of a makeshift platform in the living room and just pompously declares his will or issues a series of executive orders for the family to follow. At least I hope not. Instead, in a healthy marriage, there's open and honest dialogue, I'd say pretty much all the time. The husband and wife get together, share their thoughts about whatever the subject is, point out anything that they feel their spouse might not be giving considerable, uh, might not be thinking about 
in the right way. And then they seek to come to a consensus about the best way forward. And it's only when that process doesn't produce a consensus that the husband at that point would overrule the wife. But in my experience, at least, that is incredibly rare. And so there will be plenty of open and honest dialogue in a healthy marriage. Fourth, submission doesn't mean staying in an abusive situation. Uh, It doesn't mean continuing to live with your husband if he's physically abusing you. And it doesn't mean quietly enduring the daily cruelty of verbal abuse either. Uh, There are numerous biblical avenues for recourse in these situations. And I'll just say, we as church leaders would be happy uh, to help you walk through this. Uh, Not only do I have confidence that each of our church elders would take any reports of abuse very seriously, uh, we also have a a number of very capable and experienced female counselors in our church as well that we would be happy to connect you with. And finally, submission doesn't mean following your husband into sin. Just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, we looked at Acts 5.29 where Peter and John tell the government authorities we must obey God rather than men. And likewise, that should be your response. If your husband uh, tries to lead you down a path that is contrary to the way God tells us to live in the Bible, you know, honey, you, you know I love you and I desire to be submissive to you, but I have to put what God tells me to do above what you tell me to do. So all of that, those five things, are what submission isn't. Yet, of course, that leads us to the question of what submission is. What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Well, again, going back to John Piper and and paraphrasing him, submission is a wife's disposition to honor her husband's authority, affirm her husband's leadership, and help him carry out that leadership through her own unique giftedness. Again, submission is a wife's disposition to honor her husband's authority, affirm her husband's leadership, and help him carry out that leadership through her own unique giftedness. This is what God calls wives to do and what will ultimately lead to the maximum amount of blessing in a marriage and flourishing in a family. And uh, contrary to what many would say, this kind of disposition on the part of a wife doesn't in any way demean a woman or turn her into a doormat or rob her of dignity. There's nothing at all contradictory between being a, or about being a submissive wife And also, at the same time, a strong and capable woman. I mean, just look at the woman described in Proverbs 31. A woman who's referred to in verse 10 of that chapter as an excellent wife, right? A wife who's essentially a model wife. And it says that she does many different things to make sure that household affairs are conducted in an orderly manner. And even at times takes advantage of a few economic opportunities outside of the home to contribute to her family's prosperity. Uh, 
uh, verses 15 through 18, state that she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. We then read in verse 25 that strength and dignity are her clothing. So again, there's nothing inherently contradictory about being a submissive wife and also, at the same time, a strong and capable woman. A woman, as it says, clothed with strength and dignity. And so this is how God calls wives to relate to their husbands. With a submissive spirit, as we see in 1 Peter, that honors their husband's authority and affirms their husband's leadership. And again, return to our passage. We see that the result of a wife relating to her husband in this way is that if the husband isn't yet a Christian, well, he may very well become a Christian because of her conduct. Again, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that, right, here's the purpose or result here, so that even if some do not obey the word, the word of the gospel, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. After that, one of the manifestations of a submissive spirit and a godly spirit that Peter chooses to focus on is the way a wife adorns herself. He writes in verses 3 and 4, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So it seems as though uh, back in ancient times, uh, women could easily become preoccupied with their physical appearance and become way too wrapped up in the latest fashions and trends. And uh, women today, of course, many of them at least, face that same temptation. Therefore, Peter reminds them that who they are on the inside is way more important than what they look like on the outside. Instead of being fixated on an external beauty that will soon fade away, women should focus their attention on cultivating what Peter calls the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty, he says, of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. And by the way, if there's any message that you know, particularly younger women or teenage girls need to hear beyond the gospel itself, you know, this would probably be it right here. And if there's any message I would like my own, at this time, six-year-old daughter to hear as she grows older and really take to heart beyond the gospel itself, that would be it. Being beautiful is about so much more than what you look like on the outside. True beauty comes from the heart. I also just want to take a moment 
and observe that this really turns the tables on the accusations many non-Christians make about the Bible supposedly demeaning women by teaching that wives should submit to their husbands. You know, in reality, it's not the Bible that demeans women, but rather our hypersexualized culture and its superficial view of beauty that demeans women. Our culture puts such an emphasis on a woman's physical attractiveness that women essentially become objects that exist for male gratification rather than people who are loved by God and created in God's image. And so not only does the Bible not demean women, it actually elevates them far higher than our, sexual, or than our secular culture does. It gives them a much higher level of dignity and worth. Then after Peter instructs wives to uh, focus their attention on the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, he continues this idea in verses 5 and 6. He writes, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter uses Abraham's wife Sarah as an example that all wives would do well to follow. And uh, by the way, the fact that Sarah called Abraham Lord, which, in case you're curious, is recorded in Genesis 18.12. It's the reference for that. Obviously, sounds a little over the top today. Uh, husbands, I certainly wouldn't recommend that any of you go home this afternoon and try to get your wife to start calling you Lord from now on. That probably would not go over uh, very well. Instead, it's critical for uh, us to understand that Sarah referring to Abraham as her Lord, that's a lowercase l, of course, it was simply in accord with the culture of that day. It was simply a culturally appropriate term of respect. And kind of like in the South today, when uh, where children will often call an adult man sir or an adult woman ma'am. And so Sarah was simply showing respect to her husband in a culturally appropriate way. Uh, the application uh, for wives today would be, I'd say just speak both to your husband and about your husband in a way that communicates respect. We then come to a major transition in this passage in verse 7. After speaking to wives in verses 1 through 6, Peter turns his attention to husbands in verse 7. By the way, I believe the reason Peter spends um, so much more time speaking to wives than, than he does husbands is because if you notice in the context, both before and after this passage, his focus in this section of the letter is on those who are in danger of being mistreated. So that focus naturally leads Peter to have a lot more to say to wives here than he does to husbands. And yet Peter does want to say at least something to husbands, and so, he says to them in verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman 
as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter tells husbands first to live with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands, it might be good for you to just take a moment and think about what that means for you. What would it involve for you to live with your wife in an understanding way? Uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference listening to a seminary president named Danny Aiken share some thoughts about this passage. Uh, Danny Aiken's been married for nearly 50 years, and so I was uh, just eager to uh, glean whatever wisdom I could from him. And unfortunately, I didn't write down exactly what he said about this verse, but here's what I did write down in my notebook, which I assume is relatively close to what he said. I wrote, be sensitive to your wife. This involves knowing how she is simply from the way she walks into a room, the look in her eyes and the tone of her voice. Women speak in code. So I wrote, the actual words mean almost nothing. So there you go. That, and that's the wisdom I gleaned from a man who's been married nearly 50 years. Now, obviously, um, before I get in too much trouble here, that is a bit tongue-in-cheek, right? We would never want to disregard the actual words that our wife is using to communicate with us. But uh, the point is that uh, simply we need to learn to pay attention to all of the ways in which our wives are trying to communicate with us, right? So that means, husbands, you're going to have to put in some effort to learn the code and understand your wife. You know, maybe someday with all the stunning advancements in AI that have been happening lately, there'll be some app on a phone that, you know, can interpret what your wife is trying to say and what she desires. But until that day comes, we are just going to have to put in some effort here. And as we seek to uh, live with our wives in an understanding way, it's helpful to be aware of the various things about our wives that we need to understand. So what exactly do we need to understand about our wives? I'd like to suggest three things. First, her desires. Understanding your wife involves taking the time to learn the kinds of things she desires and appreciates, even just those little things. Uh, for example, one of the little things my wife appreciates is when I fill up her water bottle as we're about to go to bed and bring it up and put it on her nightstand right before we turn in for the evening. She also appreciates it. Um, she actually just stopped drinking coffee, but in the past she appreciated it when uh, I would get things ready for her coffee in the morning. And I know she certainly appreciates it when I tell her that I love her. That is a very important desire women have, the, the desire to hear their husbands say, I love you. Um, you know, I heard about one husband whose wife uh, told him that, that she wanted him to say, I love you, uh, more than he did. And so he replied to her, honey, I, I told you that I loved you at the beginning of our marriage. If it ever changes, I'll let you know. But until then, just assume it's still in effect. So yeah, that's an example of what not to do, right? So understanding your wife involves understanding her desires. Second, 
It also involves understanding her viewpoints. And this requires that you actually listen uh, to the things that she says instead of just passively hearing the sounds coming out of her mouth and nodding your head and pretending to listen. So I'm sure no husband in here has ever done anything like that. But just, you know, theoretically, in case any of us at some point in the future should unexpectedly be tempted to do something like that, uh, we shouldn't. And on a slightly different note, understanding your wife's viewpoints also involves understanding she's different than you, right? I mean, newsflash, right? In case you've only been married for a day or two and haven't figured this out yet, wives, it turns out, process things differently than you do. They have different ways of experiencing emotions than you do. And they often just view situations in general much differently than you. And part of living with your wife in an understanding way involves learning to recognize and even appreciate those differences. And then finally, living with your wife in an understanding way involves striving to understand her feelings. Uh, Now, this is especially important when her feelings involve her feeling upset about something, but it's also important in a lot of other situations as well. It's just one of those, those truths as timeless and universal as just about anything else in this world that wives like to talk about their feelings. And so, uh, living with your wife in an understanding way involves listening to her feelings and even asking good questions to draw out those feelings and help her express those feelings even more. And then particularly if your wife is upset about something, there's an all-important question that you should ask at the end. I didn't discover this question until about seven years into my marriage, and I'll just say it was a game-changer in some ways. After your wife has thoroughly expressed her feelings and also elaborated on why she feels that way, just ask her in a gentle and sensitive tone, how would you like me to respond? In other words, is there anything that you would like me to do in response to what you just shared? Like, is this a problem that you want me to try to fix? Or... Did you just want me to listen? I think in general, things will go a lot better in your marriage and, yes, for you as a husband if you learn to ask some form of that simple question. And so uh, these are some of the things that living with our wives in an understanding way involves. Understanding her desires, her viewpoints, and her feelings. Then as we continue on in our main passage, Peter tells husbands that as they do this, they should be showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Again, this doesn't mean wives are inferior to their husbands. Uh, Rather, the word weaker here seems to be primarily a reference to a woman's level of physical strength. And also, uh, let me encourage you not to focus so much on the phrase weaker vessel even though that's what kind of sticks out to us, that you miss the phrase showing honor. Like Peter commands husbands to show 
honor to their wives. And not in a flattering or patronizing way, but with all sincerity. So without a doubt, this is a radical departure from the chauvinism that seems to have been common in previous generations and certainly a resounding rebuke to any husband who would demean his wife. Peter then says that husbands should do this for two reasons. First, their wives are heirs with them of the grace of life, which seems to be a reference to eternal life in heaven. In other words, women aren't second-class citizens of heaven, but equal heirs of heaven alongside men. They should therefore be treated as such by their husbands. In addition, Peter gives husbands a warning that they should do this, quote, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, don't expect God to answer your prayers if you're mistreating one of his daughters. Uh, I think any man or any, any father in this church could quickly tell you that one of the easiest ways, maybe the easiest way to get on his bad side real quick would be to mistreat a daughter, right? And so don't think God's going to answer your prayers if you're mistreating one of his daughters. And so that's the way uh, Peter instructs husbands and wives to relate to each other. And I hope it's become clear as we've gone through this passage that this is indeed a radical departure from, again, both the feminism that's characterized our society for the past 60 years or so, as well as the chauvinism that's often characterized previous generations. In addition, as we've gone through this passage, I'm sure it has been a powerful and perhaps even painful uh, reminder for all of us who are married and even uh, for many who aren't married, of how short we all fall of the way God expects us to live. The fact is that even the best marriages fall short of what God intends them to be because of the way in which both husbands and wives struggle to practice the things Peter mentions in this passage. Wives consistently struggle to honor their husbands as God calls them to do and to display, as Peter says, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And husbands, for their part, certainly often fail to live with their wives in an understanding way and show them honor and lead them in a godly manner. In short, we sin and often bring our sins into marriage, and treat our spouse in a sinful way, and hurt our spouse, and harm our marriage as a result. Thankfully, though, there's good news for sinners like us. And that good news is that God has sent his own son, Jesus, to come to this earth and rescue us from our sins. Jesus did that by living a perfectly sinless life, and then dying on the cross to take the penalty for our sins. And that penalty, of course, wasn't just marital problems, but the actual judgment and wrath of Almighty God against us. Instead of us having to face that forever in hell, Jesus 
endured that in our place on the cross. He was then raised from the dead and now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him, exclusively in him, to do that. No matter what sins we've committed, no matter what messes we've made, whether it be in marriage or in any other aspect of our lives, Jesus offers us full forgiveness, full cleansing. He also offers us a new ability that we've never had before to overcome the sinful desires that so often tear marriages apart and offers us healing from from whatever wounds we might be carrying within us from the past. Whatever brokenness we might be suffering and whatever problems we might be facing, Jesus is the answer. 